Hey everyone, this is Ben with the Defend Your Ground podcast from Blue Ribbon Coalition. Um, I'm here today with Marcus Trusty. I invited him to be a guest on the show today. He's one of our good friends and allies out of Colorado. He's affiliated with several off-road groups there in Colorado, and they are involved in a lot of important work. Uh, so Marcus, why don't you introduce yourself and let's get talking about some of the things you're working on over there in Colorado. Sure. Thanks for having me on again, Ben. It's great to be here. I'm based out of central Colorado. 2017, I formed the organization called CORE, which is Colorado Off-Road Enterprise, um, basically an advocacy, trail adoption, trail work group, uh, part of Stay the Trail Colorado too, which is the Education and Stewardship Alliance for Ethical Behavior on Public Lands. Awesome. And you guys have been busy since 2017 uh, when you started CORE. I know I was reached out to by you and I believe Patrick McKay several years ago, you were talking to me about some issues going on with the Pike San Isabel National Forest forest plan that they had, that apparently they had closed some roads back after a wildfire burned and destroyed an area. And you guys have been fighting for years to get those reopened back up that went through a forest plan. And if I understand correctly, you guys are now currently litigating the fact that those roads were never reopened and so why don't you tell us about, I think it was a, probably about two weeks ago you filed this litigation. I know the members of BRC would be very interested to learn about this. Yeah, so it's kind of a complicated and very checkered past that's been going on since 2002. Uh, but to answer the last question first, which is this, the most simple one, is on February 14th, CORE officially filed a complaint uh, with the final decision of the travel management for the Pike and San Isabel National Forest which was finalized, I, I think the decision came out in November of 2002, it was, it was signed. And wow. it goes all the way back to, uh, excuse me, November of 2022. It goes all okay. the way back to 2002, uh, which is the Hayman Fire at the time was the largest wildfire in the history of Colorado. <coughs> Happened just outside of Colorado Springs in Denver to the west. Um, you know, is not uncommon with these. There's a temporary closure issued so that it keeps the public off of roads and out of the area of the fire zone. When the fires are done, they usually do a study and, you know, an EA and an environmental assessment to see what the damage was, when we can reopen infrastructure, roads, trails, and such, and allow the public back in. Um, they came to a decision, had a findings of no significant impact, saying that the area was, was you know, okay for the public to use and then released the decision saying that they wanted the counties uh, to agree to a maintenance um, agreement in the form of easements to open these roads. And there's four counties involved and two forests, and it's very complicated um, with getting everybody to talk together, right? Um, yeah. And so what, what ultimately happened, unbeknownst to off-road groups at the time, was the Forest Service never wanted those roads open, actively worked behind the scenes to keep those roads closed to prevent the counties who were asking and, and had submitted applications for easements on those roads. They weren't assigning them. They were delaying them behind the scenes. Then in 2015, they settled a, a lawsuit and agreed to do travel management across the entire forest. Uh, those roads would then be part of that travel management um, the Forest Service then subsequently worked behind the scenes to ensure that that process ended in the closure of those routes, uh, went so far as to keep them out of a NEPA analysis so that they, 
they basically game their own process to end at the conclusion that they wanted. And basically that's what our, our complaint is challenging is that, you know, you have federal process that you have to follow. The public needs to be involved in that. You have to perform certain steps before you can just close roads. And it'll be interesting to see, to my knowledge, an off-road group has never challenged that level of a process internally with what they did. Um, we're not just alleging that. We have the internal emails of them discussing all of these things and how they are going to do that. So they told us what they were going to do and then ultimately did it. Uh, so, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll ultimately see what happens. Yeah, so those are so a few interesting points that I, caught my interest on in this lawsuit. And there's, I, I think the number of people that read these kinds of lawsuits is already pretty small. But the impact they have on our users is great. So there's a few points I want to point out. First of all, the length of time that you've been working on this, not just you, but the off-road community. This started in 2002, triggered by a wildfire over 20 years later, still unresolved. And so people sometimes ask me, like, what's the value of Blue Ribbon Coalition or CORE or these groups that fight, like, and I say the you've got to have these groups that have been in these fights for a lot of times they take decades to, to resolve. And so to have folks who have been involved that long is a huge value and one of the big assets of our community and we have to and that's why we have to keep funding and keeping alive these nonprofits like Blue Ribbon Coalition and CORE is because these fights take that long and if you're not giving them a base fundraiser level to work off of to be involved in these fights for 20 years then we will we won't have what it takes to get these done so I commend your group for sticking to this one for that long um, second point, 2015, you said there was a settlement that required the travel planning. Was that the main travel planning rule rewrite that kind of affected everything like snowmobile? There was a big decision in 2015, or is this unique just to this forest? So this one in this case is unique just to this forest. Um, okay. Kind of stems from the 2009 MVM implementation, and mm -hmm. the Pike and San Isabel didn't have good data they didn't really produce a very accurate uh, motor vehicle use map initially. And so, unfortunately, many off-road groups came to them and said, hey, you have a lot of stuff that's not on your MVM. And mm -hmm. so then they corrected their MVMs, they added things in, and then they were sued uh, by anti-motorized groups, uh, Wilderness Society, Quiet Use Coalition, Old Broads, you know the list of the, the, mm -hmm. the usual suspects, right? And they said, well, you didn't do a NEPA on these routes before you added them into the MVM, even though they'd been historic routes for hundreds of years, 100 years plus on the ground. And so it was a technicality. And it's the same thing that we're seeing now, right? That's, that's the playbook is the, the anti-motorized groups will sue in an effort to settle, require travel management, and then we'll get, you know, routes chipped away during travel management, which is going on all over the country. Essentially, that's what happened in 2015 here that kicked off uh, travel management for the entire Pike and San Isabel National Forest. Uh, everything was up for debate then as we went through that process. Right. And so that helps fill that in for me. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me about this one is the <clears throat> what you were able to get in your discovery emails or FOIAs or whatever you did to find these internal communications that showed the Forest Service really had been colluding for 20 years to close these roads because I, i'll often say look there's really a movement 
to launder roads out of the public land system. That the wilderness groups don't like the roads there. Uh, they, if you have a road in an area, it's not eligible for wilderness designation, and so they've got to be systematically closing more and more roads across the board everywhere they can. And sometimes when I say this is an effort that's going on for that, they're playing a game that really does take decades to play out. People look at me sideways and they're like, "Really? You're just a nut." Like, that's just a conspiracy. But it's interesting to me that you guys actually found the emails. There's evidence on the ground. These roads have been closed. There has been a systematic effort to close these roads for over 20 years now. And so I don't want, I mean, I know we're sensitive. This is a legal action. We don't need to get into the legal details of your strategy. But that's just something that really stuck out to me that you had those emails and on on a surface level, this lawsuit feels very familiar to me. We're challenging the process. That's what the wilderness groups did in 2015. It's hard to get this process right if you're a federal agency. And that tends to be a lot of the lawsuits that BRC files. But this fact that you found what looks to be like a collusion or a conspiracy, or they pre-cooked the books, there was a predetermined outcome, is the thing that I think gives your guys' case a lot of merit. And I hope that it gets the right level of scrutiny in the court system. And um, I just applaud everything you guys are doing. I think you've done great work here. So, Marcus, why don't you tell us what comes next then with this legal action? Where you go from here? And what, if anything, that BRC members can do to help your organization and make sure that you guys have whatever you need to get this done? Yeah, sure. So we're working on an injunction right now to file so that they can't implement the decision until our complaint is heard and moves through the process. All of our information is either on our website, our social media handles, and YouTube, which is all Keep Trails Open. Everything we do, you can find us at keeptrailsopen.com. If you type in at Keep Trails Open on Facebook or Instagram, we'll pop up, and our YouTube channel is Keep Trails Open. So if you go to our website, you can find the link to our fundraising campaign. You can go down through our news page and see the press releases, the articles, everything that's been written, and even dig into the full uh, convoluted history of everything that we found. Um, so, yeah, just look, just look for Keep Trails Open and, and read as much as you want. Okay. Well, awesome. I think everybody should do that. Um, this is definitely one of the good fights. I'm, I'm always grateful when there's other uh, really qualified organizations fighting these fights because we're up against a whole army of other organizations that want to close our access. And so anytime there's a good organization fighting with us to keep them open, uh, we think they deserve all the support they can get. Uh, one thing I also want to add on this lawsuit is that the road was closed because of a fire. Uh, Blue Ribbon Coalition in the past year, we've commented and engaged on over 300 federal actions across the country. I would say the vast majority of those are vegetation treatments and post-fire salvage projects related to forest management. And so if you are in California or Oregon or somewhere like that where there's been a big wildfire, it's guaranteed that the Forest Service is going through the same process that the Heyman fire went through back in 2002. And after it was your case that led me to tell our policy director we have to watch these. They will close roads through this process if we're not watching it. And our community tends to not look at this because it looks like vegetation treatment. This looks like logging projects. This looks like something the timber industry should be watching, not the recreation industry, but because they're using these processes to close roads. 
uh, we've been heavily engaged on these so that we can be legally involved, we'll have legal standing, and we'll do everything we can to make sure that other roads don't get closed through the same process from what we've learned here from you in Colorado. Um, so in Colorado and in your neck of the woods, there's been a lot of discussion. You're one of what I would consider to be the hot spots of places in the country that's getting a lot of use from a user group that I refer to broadly as the dispersed camping user group. And that includes people in RVs, people in van lifers. This is overlanders. This is car camping. Uh, backpacking even qualifies as dispersed camping. But um, your area has had a lot of attention drawn to this, but lar largely led by efforts led at the local level by the county where they're wanting to rein this in. There's Certainly during COVID, there was an explosion of use of this type all over what I understand is the Leadville, Salida Ranger districts. The BLM's gone through camping plans to address dispersed camping on BLM lands in this. We've been engaged on that. Um, the Forest Service has also started their own process to do their, and that's currently open for public comment right now. We have an action alert at BRC on this right now. I know you must know all these Forest Service rangers because you do a lot of work on the trails through um, Stay the Trail here. And so why don't you give our listeners a little bit uh, the inside scoop of what's going on with these camping plans. The, I, I understand that there's some good things going on. There is kind of an, an impact that's going to happen that I think will lead to restriction on what's currently being practiced right now. And so why don't you educate us on what's going on there so that those the, those of us who are making public comment come at this as, a, as informed as possible and can be a productive, collaborative voice with the Forest Service and ideally influence them to adopt the best possible plan here. Sure. And you bring up several points that this is somewhat multi-layered. Um, you're right. We did go through the BLM um, camping management project in my area. We don't have large swaths of BLM land here, so that, that kind of affected small pockets of area. Uh, obviously, BRC was involved. You had an action alert on that one. And now the two ranger districts that, are, that encompass my area are going through their form of a camping plan. But if you back up just for a second, this was initially spurred on by a local county planning group that essentially thought that there's too much recreation happening on public lands that we need to start to do things to balance recreation. And if things are out of balance, that obviously means restriction, right? So we're saying that there's too much, and even if it's not openly calling for recreation restriction, ultimately that's what's been the result. And so the county planning group put a plan together and essentially leveraged the BLM and the Forest Service to enter into their own camping management projects. And BLM didn't do a great job. They just kind of ran headfirst into this, said, yes, county, we'll do what you say. We were pretty involved in that. And, and honestly, the final decision is not terrible. Um, we can live with it. There was not a lot of closures. There was some road closures complement, contemplated as part of that. Um, we pushed them away from that. So it, it ultimately is not as bad as it could have been. Um, the Forest Service one's a little bit different. Um, we do have great relationships with both Forest Service districts. They sought a lot of volunteer group opinions and feedback before they even entered into their project. So it's not to say that we can't be on the losing end of this for dispersed camping. And ultimately what they're getting at is that if, if you don't have the ability to show up into an area with public lands 
and the county that I live in is 82% public land. So there's a lot of desirability here. And public land um, use and even dispersed camping, as you know, Ben, leads to a whole host of recreation opportunities, right? It's, they're stacking recreation on top of itself because they're staying here for more than one day and engaging in some type of dispersed camping. So this will affect recreation for everybody, um, not just the motorized user, but, but clearly we're driving a vehicle somewhere to engage in dispersed camping in most cases. Um, so the proposal right now is to designate dispersed sites in high-use um, high corridors, areas that are easily accessible. could be a two-wheel drive vehicle or just a stock off-the-lot four-wheel drive vehicle. Those would be potentially going to designated dispersed, potentially building some new campgrounds, official managed forest service campgrounds. And then outside of those corridors, still leaving open designated dispersed or undesignated dispersed camping. So you could find a spot. Um, you could set up your dispersed camping area. There's not a lot of those just because of the geography and the terrain that we deal with in, in Colorado outside of the high um, use corridors. So it still stands to be a net negative in terms of availability for dispersed camping, expansion of dispersed camping. And then the fact that the, the proposal kind of leads open of how we're going to monitor this and what future actions we may take place after a decision is made. And there's nothing to say that the county or other groups couldn't leverage them into closing an area indefinitely into the future that has been managed to be left open during this process. So while we don't feel terrible about how it's being rolled out, we're continually involved in, in and really, as you said before, it's it's not just a, a single decision. We, we have to be involved long-term in a lot of these things because you never know what they're going to do in the next one, two, five, ten years down the road without, you know, involvement from from our groups after the decision is made. Yeah, something that – and something I've noticed is that the dispersed camping community isn't as well organized as the off-road community. A lot of times they're the same people and the off-road community organizes around keeping its roads and trails open, but it hasn't built the same base of a movement to keep campsites open. And I think it's because we've taken it for granted and agencies have generally been pretty permissive about allowing it. And now they're changing posture and saying this is something that does need to be regulated. There's a lot more use. Um, some of the first legal actions I got involved in at BRC were these settlements with the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance in Utah on travel plans. And I was expecting to read when they first filed their first appeal, I was like, this is going to be a screed against the side-by-sides. And they didn't even mention side-by-sides in the lawsuit. They spent five pages talking about the impacts of dispersed camping. And I was like, wow, I've been out in that desert. And the only other users I saw weren't any side-by-side users or off-roaders. It was Subarus with SUA stickers in their windows they're hurting their own members. And so that's where I, it kind of dawned on me that this dispersed camping community, which the Forest Service refers to as vehicle-based dispersed camping, is really the kind that's getting regulated. I Like, you'll still have backpacking and those kinds of things often getting regulated. In Colorado, probably more than other places, when people go hike the 14ers and get into the wilderness in the backcountry, they're looking at the backpacking a little more closely. But for the most part... Most of the regulations we're seeing are the vehicle based. And so if you and usually the way the rules used to work is you could camp anywhere 
30 feet or 100 feet off the side of any road that was currently open in the travel plan. And so some of the trends I'm seeing in this action, this Forest Service action, is there's a lot of concern about what they're referring to as user-created routes or undesignated routes or unauthorized routes. And I, I don't know enough about the area to know, are these routes that are really going off into the woods <clears throat> for miles, or are these routes that are really just staying within that 30 or 100-foot uh, disturbance corridor that's generally been allowed? And in many cases, when I've driven through Forest Service roads, that's usually what it is, is there's a pull-off where there's a fire ring and a trees and campsite and people are camping there. And so I have concerns about whether they are going to close what are probably legitimate uses of a disturbance corridor but if they're really going off in the woods and those roads are unauthorized and they shouldn't be there then we should be working with the forest service to either close those or make the make the ask of should we keep some of these open there is a contemplation in this plan that if the designated sites show 85 percent occupancy over the course of a year that they would look in creating more uh, that was the one thing I saw in this where it's like they are contemplating that this is an expanding and growing use type and they might need to adjust their management accordingly. Everything else was really um, hard coding in the possibility to close what they're wanting to leave open at this point. So why don't you speak to that first of all. Talk to me about the unauthorized routes. You've actually wheeled these routes a lot more than I have. How prevalent is that problem? And how much closure are we going to see just because they're closing routes that they consider unauthorized? Yeah, so you bring up an interesting point, and, and I think all of us in land use advocacy, we, we, we try and walk the line very carefully in this area because you and I both agree that we, just, we don't want people just driving off into National Forest for no reason for a quarter mile, half a mile, and just setting up shop, right, where there was no disturbance. Right. Um, located there previously and so while we're obviously you know advocating for responsible behavior at the same time some of these things fall into historic usage or areas where quite simply there has been historic camping that maybe the agency wasn't aware of or hasn't been as popular as it is right now so you know there's there's places i know of that are spur routes they're called where there mm -hmm. used to be a route that went somewhere and long ago that route was closed for whatever reason and so now there's only a quarter mile or a half a mile of that route left and so in terms of like recreational use value that's not huge it doesn't go somewhere that it used to and in many cases those just become camping spurs so you can get off the main route a half mile quarter mile whatever it is and then make you know a campsite and that's what those routes are traditionally used for now is we would just consider them a camping spur. Well, if the agency doesn't know that that exists or that's not on a current motor vehicle use map or they thought the closure was back at the main road and it turns out it was a quarter mile in, you see how these like technicalities and, and misapplications of information and mapping technologies over the years can lead to something that there's I remember from my childhood, there's places where I have personally camped where now they'll show up in these plans as well. It's an, it's an, it's an unauthorized route. There's unauthorized camping going on in these places. And it's simply because over the years and with the turnover of agencies and, and quite honestly, bad information, they don't know about it. And that's where we've tried to take an active role in saying, well, not only is this an 
a legitimate place to camp, but it, it actually has been a route. It was a route, and there's been historic camping use in the area. So what I feel is our role in this is to provide the context and the information that is solid for the agency then to look at and go off of. And to honestly counter stuff where there's a new property owner in the area and they don't like dispersed camping there, so they're going out and taking pictures and documenting, this is a brand new campsite, there's people that were camping here that weren't camping here last year. And it's, it's just a matter of trying to get the really good on-ground information, um, bringing that up to the agency to dispel a lot of these myths. And, and certainly yeah. if there was a, a situation where somebody's just driving out in the forest for no reason, making a brand new route, and then setting up camp, we don't want that. We would actually like to report that and help them. But in the other cases, if it's somebody complaining about camping or the agency basically has a mapping error or doesn't understand the historic use of an error, absolutely trying to point that out, that it's it's not a new disturbance that's going on. It's just somebody's now rediscovered an old site, and, and they're quite simply using it, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem there. Yeah, probably not hurting anything. I mean, you brought up the private property owners, which I thought was interesting in this because it looks as if through this plan, they're trying to create a buffer zone of around a quarter mile from any private property line. And I will say you, you'll be hard pressed to find somebody that'll fight harder for the rights of private property owners. I have helped cattle ranchers get access to their private properties that are in holdings within federal lands and it, that can be a tough undertaking if the federal agencies decide they want to cut off closure of access to private property. I, I'm a private property purist. I love the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, but there is not a single law anywhere that says you deserve a buffer zone of public land around your private property. And that's one of my biggest problems with this plan. And and private property owners off like when you go buy a lot of private property that's adjacent to federal land, that that feature that you are a, a neighbor to federal land increases the value of the land. That is sold as a benefit of the land. Uh, my, I, I know there's areas down in like St. George where properties that are adjacent to like a tortoise preserve, so that's kind of managed as like a habitat protection area for this desert tortoise, if your property is adjacent to that, you actually get taxed at a higher rate because that's considered a luxury property because nobody will ever build behind you. And so your view sheds are all protected and all. And so being a neighbor to federal land, there's part, part of the reason that private property is so valuable is because of that. There is nothing that says you get that your private property protections extend a quarter mile into the public domain. And so I have zero tolerance for a private property owner saying, well, people shouldn't be using the public land within a quarter mile of my property boundary. Your property ends at the property line, period. And if you don't like that, then then that's something you should have looked at when you did the due diligence on buying the property. And so I think if there's usable, good campsites adjacent to private property, good. The public should go camp on it. That's their public land. They should be able to use it. A private property owner shouldn't be able to weaponize a federal agency to prevent public the public from ben accessing the public benefit of public land in that area. And that's that's probably one of the most glaring problems I see in this proposal is that the agency actually went there. Um, 
that all being said, we talked about the Spurs. I believe most of those go to areas, and I don't think they create much impact. However, I mean, the agency isn't, this decision isn't being created in a vacuum. This plan isn't being asked for in a vacuum. There has been a surge in this use. There are some certain dispersed camping behaviors that this plan is actually saying. There's triggers that if you do X, we will look at closing the site. And so I, I don't know if you've read some of those, but one of those was like, if we, if we in a year find two times, twice, that somebody's left human waste behind, like toilet paper and human waste, we'll close the site. If there is garbage left behind at the site two times in a year, then we will potentially close the site. And so they're actually like putting in place, like where you said we have to watch this moving forward. They're actually installing what I would consider to be a software program where they really could even close everything that they're leaving open now because of what is likely to be irresponsible use down the road. And so I'm curious what you think about that aspect of this plan. I know I can imagine your group, the education organization you're involved in, Stay the Trail, probably has to deal with this relentlessly. We have to deal with this relentlessly. Uh, so what are some of the, why don't you educate everybody about what the Forest Service is thinking of doing there? Yeah, it's a, it's a really tough window that they leave open in that case, because you're right, there could be, you know, the the uh, season for dispersed camping, as in a lot of areas in Colorado, is expanding. So you could have four or five months of time that a lot of good users, people obeying the rules, camping correctly, are using that site. And then two times out of that five months, a negative user could be in there and, you know, break the rules so-called or or trigger that that um aspect of the the decision and and then it negates the use for all of the people that are abiding by the rules right and in doing the right thing and unfortunately because some of these areas border private lands as you said ben that the property owner is the one that's there all the time they're the one that's complaining to the agency and in monitoring all of this so they quite simply could go out two different times during the year and take pictures of negative behavior and it doesn't matter if if stay the trail or core another volunteer group comes in later and does an area cleanup or helps the agency manage that area if there's documented bad behavior immediately a couple different times then it leaves the the window open for ultimate closure long term and that's a challenging battle to fight the the only thing we've been successful with is maintaining a good relationship as a volunteer group with the agencies so that we can show the work that good users are doing that volunteers are doing to help them ultimately keep areas open and to combat some of that you know negative information and um uh negative you know, attitudes to public land uses that are coming back from a, a nearby or adjacent private property owner. Yeah, and this isn't an idle threat. Um, I mean, this Envision Chafee County thing, I mean, they have like built apps to kind of to mobilize volunteers to go out and basically surveil sites. And so they'll be looking at sites. And then if you camp there, they'll come look at it after. I mean, there's like a whole little community of activists around your area that really want to see this shut down and so i have like huge problems with this hard-coded prescription for closure based off of certain triggers because it doesn't allow for the civil 
society and the correction of the problems to take root. And this isn't normally how we administer public benefits. So if a highway or a freeway is a public benefit and people abuse highways and freeways. There's irresponsible use on freeways every day. You've got people speeding, you've got people throwing garbage out the window, you've got people using them as drug corridors. Like a federal highway doesn't get lawfully used 100% of the time. We don't look at unlawful use and say, we're going to close the freeway to everybody because of these few bad actors that are behaving irresponsibly. So for us to look at a public benefit of campgrounds on public land and say there has been an instance where somebody's behaved irresponsibly, we weren't able to enforce the law against that user. We didn't have the enforcement capacity to actually punish the lawbreaker. And so we're just going to punish everybody. Like, I just don't see why anybody in our community adopts and legitimizes that mindset. But it happens all the time. Like, when I posted this action alert, they're like, well, a bunch of knuckleheads are out there not cleaning up their garbage. And so I guess that's what happens. I'm like, no, that's not what happens. That isn't the consequence. That Like, you either figure out how to, if you don't have laws that are enforceable against the lawbreakers, then you don't have laws. And so to take away a public benefit... It just seems like a terrible approach for management. You're sowing division in the community. You're empowering this eco-surveillance neighborhood where everybody's watching everybody over their back. And it just seems like a recipe for disaster to me. Well, and, and even let's think about it this way. Take it a step further. You essentially have what has become, in my mind, a county homeowners association, right? Like that, this localized county planning yeah. group that's known as Envision Chafee County has manifested itself as ultimately the homeowners association of the entire county. And they have volunteers that are going out that would rather spend their time and effort to photograph bad behavior and the aftermath of bad behavior than just volunteering and picking up some of that trash and moving on as a good volunteer group would. They're using their time to specifically create a negative image so that they can get something closed Instead of if it was truly the trash that was bothering them and they just spent that same amount of time cleaning up the trash, there would be no problems. And, and that ultimately is, is what really, you know, makes us want to be the advocates that we are and drives us from the other side to be like, come on, you guys, we can all work together. If, if we don't like trash, you don't like trash, we're picking up trash. If you're out there, how about you help us instead of trying to, um, you know, drum up the 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 environment so that it looks like it, it's constantly negative from all the people all the time which is 100 percent not true yeah and what i've found and it doesn't seem to be well i mean it's kind of the case with this plan in that this is what i've seen in other plans like when they move from what has been an open dispersed environment where you can kind of camp wherever the rules allow but there aren't specific sites Uh, to a dispersed site-specific form of camping only. Uh, Usually they pick sites that already show heavy evidence of use, heavy impacts, they call them hardened sites or concentrated sites. And what that means is if you're that user that is pretty responsible, that can actually go camp somewhere and and leave no trace, you self-contain your waste, you self-contain your water, you self-contain your trash, You've gone in, camped, left, and it would take probably some sort of a forensic scientist to figure out you were there. 
uh, you're the person who no longer can do that. You have to go camp in the designated site, the hardened site. And that is, I think, the biggest problem with this. And, and what you were mentioning to me earlier is there are some areas where that experience is still available, where you could go do the open, free, dispersed camping. But most of those areas in this part of Colorado are the terrain isn't very conducive to it. It's not going to be the place where you're going to want to do this. And so it, it, there's this perverse incentive where we're punishing the best users, rewarding the ones who are causing the most impact and managing towards what, what is like probably the lowest common denominator here and what's happening on the landscape. And I think the Forest Service can and should be better than that. I mean, there are actual... One of their founding principles is the greatest number of use for the greatest number of users or something or the greatest benefit for the greatest number of users. And so I always, when we comment on these camping plans at BRC, we're okay with a wide range of camping experiences. I'm okay with a reservation-based campground and a reservation system. Some people like that. Some people like the dispersed camping site and knowing that you're there, that that site's official and you can camp there. Some people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars building rigs so that they can go disappear off the grid and camp somewhere out in the middle of nowhere that isn't a designated site. And that's a hugely valuable experience to them. I think our public lands are vast enough that we can accommodate all those user types and any good camping plans going to recognize that and make sure you're balancing all of those uses effectively instead of just eliminating one of them and, and only managing towards one and that seems to be what is happening and so we're laying that marker down that we think it's bad management um let's talk a little bit about the fire component of this they said that there have been instances of unattended campfires um are you aware of any of those where they've led to a pretty like where they've led to a big fire or there's been problems where they know unattended campfires have happened in this area no, so we have not had a major forest fire in my lifetime. I'm a native of this area. I'm 42 years old. There's been no major wildland fire here. Um, so that means nothing from a campfire has gone awry and, and caused major property damage or landscape-altering effects. But it seems like in Colorado that's – that's the fear-based marketing component of a whole bunch of things across the entire state is that we're primed to have a landscape erasing megafire and it's going to be started by a human. And so now that we can't predict the future, we don't want anybody to have campfires. And if I show up and, and somebody just left a site and there's a hint of, of something even smoldering or steam continuing to rise up from a fire ring, I'm counting that as an active unattended fire. And again, I don't want to sound like I don't care about any of those things. I mean, I've put out fires that weren't 100% extinguished either. And, you know, we've talked to people that I've come across when there's a fire ban and people show up and they don't know about it, that the fire ban's in place because of existing conditions and all those types of things. And, and we certainly don't want anybody to start a forest fire. But, but what happens here is it usually gets pushed beyond the line of um, – you know, due diligence in reality in some cases, and it's quite simply fear-mongering that you're trying to get property owners to be terrified that anybody going into the National Forest for any reason is going to start a wildfire and it's going to destroy your house. 
And the reality is there could be a wildfire anytime and it could destroy anybody's property in Colorado at any time. That's just the environment we live in. Yeah. Um, so trying to separate through those things that because one property owner documented something doesn't mean that it's happening 100% of the time everywhere within a national forest. It's, it's, it's just a hard topic to, to navigate for sure. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, they did include unintended wildfires as one of these triggers that I think if they find two of these a year at a specific campsite, then they'll close that campsite. And so I, and I bring that up just so that the dispersed community knows, like, if this goes into effect, there really are going to start being consequences. And so you have, if you aren't already practicing responsible fire practices, it, you have to start like yesterday. Uh, and you should follow what the conditions say. You should, if you are, if you are authorized to do a fire, you have to make sure it's out and, or just don't start when I've, I've gotten to where I'm very selective about when I'll actually light a campfire when I'm camping because of the drought conditions we've had. I've just almost found other ways to enjoy the evening so that I don't put myself at risk. And if you do start a campfire and they catch you, you will pay for it. They, they will bleed your home insurance gone. <laughs> It'll right. be drawn out of your home insurance policy and you're still liable for that. And it's a something you should take a lot more seriously than I think the public sometimes does. And but again, I think it also gets used to create this fear-based decision making in the agencies that they just want to avoid risk, and this is the easiest way to do it. Yes, and in this case, I ultimately think that the the long-term goal is to not allow any type of dispersed campfires anywhere in this county. Now, that may not happen for five or ten years down the road, but when you read, you know, what the community organizing groups do, what the private property concerns are, and then how the forest responds to some of these things, you can see that that's not a far-fetched prediction coming down the pipes eventually that there will be no dispersed campfires allowed anywhere within at least this national forest at some point. Yeah, and I like I expect unless we figure out a way to insure against that better than we currently do, um, I would just expect to see that nationally. Uh, just because there have, to be fair, there have been instances where unattended campfires have started megafires. It's not an impossible scenario. It happens a few times a year at least. Uh, and so it's something the public should be taking very seriously. And... But I, and I think, but aside from just trying to eliminate the campfires themselves, I think the same folks want to eliminate dispersed camping use in general. Yeah, I think there's a certain group they just do not like that this activity is happening, and that's why I think it's important that we all that it's one of my favorite experiences to do on public land. That's why I get so fired up about it. Um, if that's something you like to do, you've got to become part of these organizations, become a member of BRC, become a member of CORE. We are going to be watching these as they get implemented down the road and be doing everything we can to fight to keep it open. But we can only be as effective as, one, how much support we have from the community, and then, two, how much the community actually adapts to the education we're providing to make sure that we're doing this responsibly so that they don't have as many excuses to close it down because they certainly are looking for those. Um, I do want to close. I do recognize that the Forest Service in this plan does appear to be proposing to be building more bathrooms 
facilities, things like that. And I think that's another thing that doesn't get talked about enough. Like if there's a human waste problem, the most obvious solution is you should probably start building and maintaining bathrooms in the area. If there's that, if there's that much use going on. And I remember I was looking at a plan in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument where they had this hole in the rock trail was getting 90,000 visitors a year. They were documenting this. And this is on sandstone, so you can't bury human waste out in this area. There just isn't anywhere to dispose of it. And they studied for seven years whether they could or how or whatever to build a bathroom. And I'm like, just build the bathroom. We don't have to study this for seven years. Clearly, the health and human safety risk and the environmental safeties are high enough that if you can't let yourself build a bathroom without seven years of studies, then you can't blame the public for behaving irresponsibly if you're not managing the resource effectively. And that's sometimes, uh, I appreciate that the Forest Service is actually proposing that as part of the solution here, is building more amenities and facilities so that uh, I, until the bathrooms are built, until there's trash cans where people can throw away the trash, I'm not convinced that it's not a management problem combined with an irresponsible behavior problem. And so, anyway, I don't know if you've been involved in those discussions, but let's make sure we get the bathrooms built yeah. and the facilities. And I would say that brings up a good point to, to wrap up the camping plan is that you're, you're right. We have good relationships with this forest, good relationships with the employees and the managers. And ultimately, I think in many cases, they are looking to help the experience actually solve some problems in, in management situations. What we highlighted on, on this podcast is some of the red flags, and we'll certainly be commenting on those and continuing to watch those. But I don't, you know, we talked at the initial part of this podcast about, you know, employees deliberately doing things to achieve an outcome. I don't see that in, the, in this plan. So we, we do feel good about it in terms of how they're approaching it. We obviously have to be involved because there could be unintended consequences or people not looking or thinking about the right things. But, but you're right. There are several good aspects of management that are proposed in this plan. And if we clean up some of the holes and, and um, question some of the red flags, I think ultimately we might end up with a you know, satisfactory decision. Awesome. Well, we'll have a link to where you can co-comment on these plans. And if you are a dispersed camper that's used this area, you definitely should add your voice my experience with the folks who enjoy dispersed camping is you never know where your next place is going to be. One day you might want to go camp in this area because it's awesome. I've been to at least Salida. I've never been up to Buena Vista, but you're right in the heart of the Rockies and some of the biggest, tallest mountains in America. And it is a cool area to visit. So if you haven't dispersed camp here and you're getting into the dispersed camping lifestyle, there's a good chance you will. It'll be on your bucket list. You'll hear about it. And so you should add your voice to this. And so we'll have a link where you can do that. We'll also put a link to keeptrailsopen.org or .com. .com. And that's where you can learn more about the uh, legal action in the Pikes and Isabel National Forest. And you can learn more about where you can support CORE, Stay the Trail, and all the good work Marcus is doing with um, our allies out there in Colorado. So thanks, Marcus, for being here. Um, if you guys haven't subscribed yet to the podcast, you should go ahead and subscribe. We are all, every week we release an episode that talks about issues like this. So if this is something that you get really excited about, probably one of the few podcasts out there talking about these kinds of things, not from the perspective of wanting to shut everything down and turn it all into wilderness. So thanks for your time, Marcus, and we'll let you get back to your day. And hopefully we'll all spread the word once we publish the episode. Sure thing. Appreciate the time, Ben. Thanks. Thanks.